Welcome to Forward Guidance Live. We have an action-packed day. The stock market, NASDAQ, is down uh, 2.8%, so pretty violent day. Uh, I am joined by a special guest who I'll be introducing in a moment. Uh, but first, as always, joined by Joseph Wang, that is Fed Guy uh, at Fed Guy 12. Joseph, so Snapchat is down about 40% today. Here's my question: How come the market doesn't? How come Snapchat investors don't understand? that Powell has their back and that there's a Powell put. I mean, come on, we should be buying the dip. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if that's true anymore, um, but they obviously don't understand that. You're exactly right, Jack. So Snapchat reported after, after the market closed yesterday, they had some negative macro comments and it seemed like it took down the entire tech complex and we're seeing the aftermath of that today. Uh, but uh, for those of you who are still bullish, there seems to be some positive squawks from some Fed commentators. I think Bostic was out today talking about, you know, maybe they could pause rate hikes for a bit. Um, so, you know, there, there seems to be some some sense within the Fed by some people that maybe they could slow down a bit. Um, I wouldn't take it too seriously, but um, if, if you are long here and hoping, uh, well, that, that there's something to fuel your hopes. But then there's something also to destroy your hopes, and that would be what happens next Wednesday, June 1st. And what would that be, Joseph? That is when quantitative tightening starts. And, um, you know, I have to say that I, I think that's going to be quite bearish for the markets. So uh, that's just my own view. But we'll see what happens. We're going to start slowly. We're going to ramp up um, over three months. And then we're going to go the full $95 billion a month. We'll never get there. We'll get about 85 is about what we'll get to um, throughout the term of QT. But, you know, 85 is, is still pretty aggressive. You guys remember the last time around, the most we ever did was 50 a month. So this time uh, the Fed is being a lot more aggressive. Yes, and uh, to analyze that and more, let's welcome today's special guest, Maroon Macro. Uh, our guest uh, is an analyst. Um, actually, I, I don't even think I should say uh, where you live because I, I know you like to be private. But uh, Maroon, tell us, paint us a picture. What do you think quantitative tightening will look up, look like on Wednesday? You have prepared some excellent charts for us, which uh, you got from um, your your Substack, Maroon Macro. Uh, but yeah, just start off. What can we expect? Yeah, so I mean, I guess, you know, quantitative tightening obviously um, will be, I guess, interesting to say the least. Um, we may have already sort of started to see some of the impacts like on the market, or at least the market anticipating like quantitative tightening beginning. Um, I guess like, so this this time around is, is, I think it's very interesting because quantitative tightening is, we're starting off with, I think the, the RRP just hit around like $2 trillion like yesterday or the day before. Um, so sort of the way that RRP is thought to be sort of like excess liquidity. Um, right. And, and so and to, to some extent, that is true. Right. Um, but but in, in, in another sense, um, you know, the RRP is also sort of kind of uh, almost like a, like a black hole for, for liquidity in some sense, too, because it, it's basically what, what's happening is it's kind of sucking deposits out of the banking system and into the money market fund industry, which is then going to the RRP. And so while those funds are, are at the RRP, they are unavailable for use in the banking system. And so. I guess we can fast forward a little bit, but I'm sort of expecting that, you know, the RRP may continue to stay high or even continue to increase like another, you know, one, two, 300 billion, something like that um, over the next few months, even as quantitative tightening begins, just because we'll see, basically what we'll see are uh, the interest rate on deposits kind of lag the increase in interest rates on the R on the RRP because the RRP will go up as the Fed is hiking rates and deposit interest rates will probably not increase quite as quickly because 
um, basically banks have been stuffed with a lot of deposits um, because of the results of quantitative easing over the past couple of years. Some of them they probably want to get rid of. Um, and so that, that something called deposit beta is basically the, the relative change in interest rates on deposits versus uh, the change in interest rates from the Federal Reserve will probably be lagging the, the deposit betas in the money market fund industry. So I think that'll be sort of an interesting dynamic to watch like as we watch quantitative tightening like continue to play out. Joseph, yeah. can you break that down? Yeah, what does that what does that I mean, mean? I so what Maroon is saying that so when when the Fed is raising rates, it, it doesn't actually filter into the commercial banking sector very quickly. And so the idea is that when the Fed, let's say if the Fed were to hike to 100 basis points, what you get in your checking account is still zero. At least for me, I've had zero percent interest rates uh, for I don't know as long as I've had a bank account, no matter what. The Fed does. <laughs> <laughs> so. But what happens though is that when the Fed is raising rates, like Maroon mentioned, the RRP goes higher, so the money funds, they can offer higher yields. So there might be a bit of a competition there where um, let's say the Fed really does go to, let's say two and a half, three percent 3% by year end, then um, the money funds, they'll be, be able to offer some competitive yields. Maybe the commercial banks still don't offer you anything and maybe there might be some movement there um, out of the banking sector into the money market funds. The thing is also, uh, just so you guys know, that money market funds, they actually have uh, management fees as well. Um, so usually what will happen is that they'll take, the, so they'll earn money on their assets and they'll take about 50 basis points, let's say to 25, 50 basis points as their own management fees. And so if you are, if the fund is earning, let's say 80 basis points on the RRP, uh, the end investor only gets, let's say 30 basis points. So there's a wedge there just to keep in mind. Yeah, I think one of the other things sort of uh, that's important, like it's context for this is one of the reasons why this is happening is is uh, bill yields have been sort of trading like at or below like the levels of the RRP balance, like oh, for basically for I, almost like since like last year, like more or less to some extent, like when when the RRP like first started taking off. And that's kind of like um, if you guys want to show this chart, this um, like kind of as a result of you see that the TGA um, basically was very, very large. Um, and then it sort of uh, basically almost in like a one for one ratio, you see the TGA drawing down and the RRP like kind of coming up. And that's basically as a result of Treasury bills that are like coming out of the market and so as those treasury bills are coming out of the market th that's normally what money market funds would invest in as opposed to either like uh regular reverse repos and like the this is this is the one right maroon this is the one um yeah this is it okay um so you can basically see like sort of like the, the tga like drawing down like one for one like basically at the same time as the rp is coming up and so to, to some extent like this this like bill shortage like sort of in the front end like that's i think is partially feeding this some of this like reverse repo action and so like sort of the the issuance mix of the treasury over the next like six to 12 months will probably impact like um how long the rp like stays large for because part of the reason why money market funds i think don't want to go out and buy treasury bills as much right now and they'd rather just go stick in the RRP is is money market funds are not really uh they're not really profit seeking entities right they're they're primarily first and foremost like overwhelming concern is safety right and safety of investment so they really cannot lose money right if they can make a little bit of money that's nice right but but they really don't want to lose money and so with interest rates sort of uh the, the terminal fed funds are kind of uncertain right now money market funds don't really want to take a lot of duration risk and so um, they will probably never technically take a loss because they will buy treasury bills and hold them to maturity. And so they will probably never take a mark to market loss, um, but they still don't want to sort of put themselves in a position where um, they're holding treasury bills that are, you know, as the Fed is hiking. So I think as as the terminal Fed fund rate becomes more um, sort of certain 
and as uh, the, as uh, maybe the treasury starts to issue some more T bills, um, and um, as the banking system maybe starts to bid deposits away from money market funds as reserve balances start to get scarce, that's probably when we'll start to see the RRP start to come down. And I, I'm not sure. Maybe that'll take like six months or so. So I think in, in the beginning period of QT here, we might we might continue to see the RRP go up. So the bill yield is is that's a critical point that if you buy a two year uh, bill, you would probably buy it at a hundred, and if rates rise, it will be at ninety eight. You'll never realize that loss, but you'll see on your screen, and the clients will see on the screen that you have less money. You know, you'll see red instead of green, and people don't like that, so they park it in the RRP. The RRP is the Federal Reserve's attempt to supply collateral to a, a market that is has too much liquidity. Uh, Joseph, I think I'm reaching the point where I, I uh, cease to understand stuff, so I should hand it over <laughs> to you. Uh, no, I think you're, you're right. So, look, I think what Maroon is saying that the, the the money funds, right? So, like you mentioned, they're they're very conservative. They have they're under all this regulation as to what they can buy and what they can't, and they just really can't buy a lot of stuff. Just really, really safe <laughs> stuff. If you're a money fund manager, you're waking up. You're basically going to just you know sleep in until like noon and then wake up and put money in the feds rb that's what you're doing every day um because there's you can't really buy anything else that that makes sense um the treasury bills which is something that they they would otherwise be buying uh the yields are below the rp um the yields are actually extremely low i think there was a there was a chart i think maroon posted on twitter showing how rich t-bills are compared to to the to the rp so um so if you're a money fund and let's say you get inflows, you can either buy, let's say, a bill, let's say 30 basis points below the RRP, let's say 50 basis points, or you can invest in the RRP at, at 80 basis points. So it, it's kind of an easy thing for you to do. And part of the reason why bill yields are so low is that the Fed has been, oh, sorry, the Treasury has been cutting issuance. So we have the sell-off that's happening in the market, as you mentioned, Jack. And when there's a sell-off in both uh bonds and stocks, people try to go to cash. And for cash, a lot of that is basically the treasury bills. They're very short-term uh, investments. It, it's basically just you know money that pays interest. And so a lot of people are buying that. And at the same time, uh, the supply of that is getting cut by treasuries. Um, this quarter, they're going to cut about $450 billion. The uh, following quarter, they're going to cut another $150 billion. So Of issuance, of issuance. Of, of treasury bill issuance. So yes. you know, less supply, more demand pushes uh, pushes yields really low. Um, so I, I agree with Maroon's view that we could see the RRP continue to increase uh, maybe significantly. And Michael Wan's got a question on that. So, uh, he asks about the federal government's higher than expected tax receipts and the lower treasury borrowing schedule as a result. And what the net impact will be on yields uh, will be together with quantitative tightening. So yeah, Mar Maroon, we got some news a few weeks ago where the treasury is going to focus on coupon issuance. That is, uh, you know, longer term stuff rather than shorter term stuff. And the RRP versus repo facility can only invest in shorter term stuff. So the long end is screwed, right? What am I missing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I get, there's sort of uh, there's a lot of factors that go into like long end yields, right? And and so to, to you know, there's obviously this lot of supply and dynam demand dynamics, right? Where you know the Federal Reserve will be reinvesting less of its maturing securities and into into longer dated Treasuries, and the, the Treasury will be issuing more. Um, so you know, clearly, like if you're just if we're living in like a one or one or two factor world, like you say, obviously U.S. you know ten year yields or whatever they go a lot higher from here. Um, but you know, that's sort of you know that's not the only thing that influences the long. End, right, the long end are also significant.
feeling is influenced by like economic conditions. And so if you're thinking that we're heading into a slowdown, I, I would argue that like, you know, um, that, you know, we'll probably see uh, duration here starting to get a bit of a bit. Um, and, and so I'm not sure that's going to be, you know, starting from right now. I mean, it may, maybe famous last words, right? But um, I, I think that, you know, at some point when people start to, my, my, my view is, and I, I think you, you guys might agree with me somewhat on this, is that we're, we're, it looks like we're heading into something of slowdown. We're starting to see like a lot of uh, sort of early signs that the economy is basically starting to roll over like a little bit. And so I think as we go further along that process, I think, you know, duration will probably catch a build, bid, like regardless of the the increased issue, like coupon issuance from the, from the Treasury or the lack of um, uh, reinvestments from the Fed. Yeah, I think if inflation weren't 8%, I think duration catching a bid would be a near certainty. I mean, you look at the Chinese cash-in manufacturing PMIs, it's in the mid-40s. It's showing not just a slowdown in growth, but true economic contraction. That would be typically a time to buy bonds. However, uh, there's a certain analyst uh, who's known on Twitter, at FedGuy12, who has been very bearish on bonds uh, since at least December 2021, and bonds have really uh, performed poorly. Uh, Joseph, will the bear market in long duration treasury bonds continue? Yeah, so like you mentioned, Jack, I view this a little bit differently. No, I definitely agree, though. So there, there, there's 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 going to be a flight to safety trade, um, like Maroon mentioned, and I think we're seeing that right now, right? So we treasury tend to 10 year hit like, let's say, 3.2 almost, and then now they're yeah. back below three. So that, that does seem to be a, a flight to safety there. And I, I think you're making some really good points about inflation as well, Jack. So. So people think, so let's say the nominal yield is, is about inflation plus growth, right? So if we have slower growth, but higher inflation, you don't necessarily go and you buy bonds, right? So that seems to be what's happening. We have slower real growth, but we have higher inflation, maybe increasing inflation. So it, it's not super clear to me that that actually makes economic sense. But, you know, I, I don't actually view assets as just, you know, fundamental. I think of it as just supply and demand. And there's just so much supply. I mean, if you, so the way that I think of this is that if you have an asset and you just create basically infinite amounts of it every year, <laughs> over a trillion dollars of it every year, eventually the prices is going to go down. And um, that's kind of what we're, what the federal government is testing. So, you know, the, I, I think that they're, they're kind of aware of this, this, um, this too. So what happens is that every quarter, so there is this, uh, it's got a Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, and it's a Fed Treasury thing, and they uh, they ask the private sector to go make a presentation to them about certain certain things. And the most recent presentation was on this actually about whether or not, you know, the due to volatility and issuance and so forth, the Treasury market is going to be okay. So and they're thinking about this. Um, I think they're going to be too late, but so I still think that yields are continue to go higher simply because the increase in supply and inflation, as Jack mentioned, will be very strong. Um, but in between, we're going to have flight to safety bids as as, as we as we see now. So we'll see. So I, I've actually mentioned this before, and many very, very wise and very good traders have said in the past, QT has always led to bonds yields crashing lower because the flight to safety trade swamps everything. So, yeah, um, like I, yeah, you you start to see like in the, in the sort of beginning period, like uh, basically bonds will sell off like a little bit during during the last period of QT, but they actually ended ended like I, I think almost maybe more than hundred basis points lower than they started, um, at least last time around. Um, so obviously we we might not you know history doesn't repeat exactly, um, but 
I, I think that to to a large extent, I think markets kind of have like front run like almost the entire like QT cycle over like the last like three four months here. Um, and so you know, obviously, this is dependent on you know how the sort of lockdowns in China continue to impact inflation, like how the the Russia Ukraine like crisis like continues to escalate or not, like whether or not we'll have like continued issues with like global food supply and like all these like sort of like fundamental like you know commodity related factors like and how the how that will continue to impact like inflation like you know in the next you know whether basically are, are we going to get like a relatively rapid like roll off of inflation or is it going to stay like persistent and is, is it going to be you know a little bit less transitory than people are thinking and so that that's obviously like one of the one of the caveats with, with my view here and actually, it's sort of uh, Joseph uh, uh, mentioned something very interesting. Um, I, I, if you want to uh, throw up a couple of the charts, basically, like um, the the size of the U.S. Treasury market has increased like significantly over the last like two or three years. Um, but but the, the 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 Treasury repo market has basically not not increased much at all. So you can see like the secured overnight financing volumes, like the software volumes, um, are more or less like like basically what they've been um, what they were like a few years ago. Even though the Treasury market is forty percent larger, and so um, that that might I lead to, to some issues. I think I, I know uh, Joseph has written about this like a little bit, I think. Um, and so basically the, the problem here is that is that a lot of investors who buy U.S. Treasury securities, like if you're not a like a real money investor, like a pension fund or some, something like that, um, um, basically you'll have to buy treasuries on, on repo. And so that would be like relative value funds. But if repo volumes like don't pick up, then, then these like levered non-bank, you know, financial institutions might have less room to absorb some of that increased treasury issuance. So that might place pressure like on the repo market too, if, if U.S. treasury issues does get to be a bit too large. Yes. So for, for just to set the background for, for people. So when, when, um, when the U.S. treasury issues a treasury, someone, someone has to buy that, right? So usually there's two types of buyers. There's the cash buyer, people who have the cash already in their account. They could be like a real money pension fund or something like that. Or there could be levered buyers. And levered buyers, they get the money by borrowing it uh, in the repo market. And that's what Maroon is showing us here. The secured overnight financing volumes, these are uh, basically the volumes in overnight treasury repo. You can see that they're huge, right? They're somewhere between 800 and 1 trillion, 800 billion and 1 trillion. So what that's saying is that every day there's, you know, there's, let's say, $900 billion borrowed to, to buy treasuries. And that's, that's, those are the levered players. Um, they could be hedge funds or they could be dealers just financing their, their inventory, but it's a pretty big market. And you, you don't see the volumes ticking higher. So that means that so far there, there hasn't been an increase in the levered buyers of, of treasuries. And so what should we think about the fact that all of the volatility that we've seen in the market, in equities, in bonds, the spike in mortgage-backed security rates, all of that has happened only when the Fed has been whispering about hiking rates. They've only started to hike rates. The two-year has gone up because of forward guidance, name of the podcast. Um, and But the taper has not started. The taper starts in eight days on, on June 1st. If we've seen this much chaos and carnage, maroon macro, and the Fed has not even started uh, quantitative tightening, what can we expect once it starts? Yeah, um, so I guess this is um, something where I, I guess maybe I have like a little bit of different view than, than a lot of consensus. And I think um, Jeremy Stein actually talked about this like a little in a speech. That Jeremy Stein is a former Federal Reserve governor um, back in, I think, 2013 or 2014, where he, he talks about what he calls the recruitment channel of monetary policy, right? And so basically, this is the, the idea that... Um, 
basically the the way a lot of the, the the way the Federal Reserve enacts a lot of the changes in, in financial markets are basically not necessarily through the direct actions of, of the Federal Reserve. So like actually like literally raising the federal funds rate or like the you know the whatever the ninety billion dollars of, of quantitative tightening that they're doing, but actually by basically um, talking to the market and then the market essentially enacts those changes themselves, right? And so that's, I think, basically what a lot of what you're seeing in tight, the tightening of financial conditions is, is not actually, you know, the Federal Reserve doing very much. I mean, they've raised the federal funds like a little bit, right? But uh, like what, like you mentioned, Jack, like the, you know, the quantitative tightening hasn't officially started yet, right? And so basically all, all, a lot of these reactions that you're seeing from the market are the market anticipating what the Federal Reserve might be doing, but fundamentally it's, it's the market tightening financial conditions themselves. And so it's banks, you know, starting to bat down hatches and you start to see like, you may Maybe like the some of these like tech stocks getting marked down or like you know, venture capital is like having a little bit of an implosion and in you know, mortgage backed securities you see are like selling off. And so it's kind of the market like reacting itself. Um, and so that might mean that that's sort of why I have this view that maybe the market is like front running a lot of the, the quantitative tightening kind of upfront as they're anticipating things that are going to happen in the future and sort of like reacting now as opposed to reacting when those changes are actually going to happen. And so. You know, I, I don't think that it's going to get better, um, but but um, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think I think a lot of the sort of very uh, dramatic reactions like we may have like already seen. I, I think we're we're kind of just continue going to continue to see a little bit more of the same like over the next like three or six months. I think. So people who are losing sixty percent a month in tech stocks, they should take solace in the fact that they won't lose 80% a month. They'll, they'll continue to lose only 60% per month. Their, their losses will not accelerate. Um, you know, Maruno, you keep losing 60% a month forever, right? Yes, that's that's uh, literally possible. Joseph, I'm gonna put up a, a chart uh, uh, from Maroon Macro, and could you just set the stage for us? So here's what I think, What on ultimately the Fed's goal is to get to $95 billion a month of roll-off. That's uh, I think sixty billion of treasuries roll off and thirty five of mortgage backed securities. Uh, it's plus, right? Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's yeah. what they want to do. Okay, but they take it's going to take them three months to get there, right? So what are they starting on June first? Seventeen and a half and thirty five. Yeah, seventeen and a half of mortgage backed securities and thirty five of treasuries. So what this is, uh, what we're seeing is. Uh, uh, Maroon, how about you just walk us through what we're, what we're seeing? On the left is mortgage-backed securities. On the right is treasuries. And folks, remember, this is running off. They're letting it expire. They're not selling, although they may sell. So, so I, I think technically this is actually not the, the most updated. Like I think this may be like a little bit off because this, this came out, I think, from Wells Fargo like like a little bit before the Fed officially announced QT. But this is a good enough, like at least like sort of uh, illustration of, of sort of what's generally going to happen. Um, and basically, this is showing the monthly roll-off caps um, for quantitative tightening. And so you can see basically um, by, I think, September it is. Um, the Federal Reserve wants to get to a roll-off caps of uh, thirty-five billion dollars a month for mortgage-backed securities and and about sixty billion dollars a month for U.S. Treasury securities. And so basically, there's this complication because, as we mentioned, like rates um, on mortgage-backed securities have risen because um, because of tightening in the mortgage market and basically it, uh, interest rate increases, um, which has extended the effective duration of mortgage-backed securities. And so, uh, mortgage-backed securities are a little bit different than than U.S. Treasury securities because they're affected by um, basically you can refinance your house at any time you want and you can also prepay your mortgage but u.s treasuries have a fixed maturity 
Um, so a 10-year treasury is always going to mature in 10 years, right? Um, and But a mortgage-backed security doesn't necessarily do the, do the same thing. And so basically, as interest rates have increased, that has extended the effective duration of the Fed's portfolio of mortgage-backed securities, which means that um, less of them mature um, early on than the Federal Reserve expected. And so basically, um, mortgage-backed securities might only be maturing something to the tune of like $20 billion a month or $25 billion a month, as opposed to $35 billion a month, which is the cap for the Federal Reserve. And so that has led to like a lot of discussion as to, you know, is the Federal Reserve going to actually sell mortgage-backed securities outright? And so, you know, that sort of is something that um, the Federal Reserve has not done before, um, at least as far as I'm aware. Like, um, generally speaking, for quantitative tightening, the way that it works is um, rather than actually selling its maturities and in, in its portfolio, what the Federal Reserve does is, is let them passively mature and, and run off that way. And so they, they set a monthly cap for, for the maximum amount of securities that they'll allow to mature without reinvesting them. Um, but you know they don't actually sell securities like back to the open market, um, and so that that's basically there's a lot of discussion right now is like will the Fed actually have to sell um, outright some mortgage-backed securities in order to hit their sort of their caps? Um, and so um, I guess I'll just preface this with with my like brief opinion. You know, I guess caveat I, I'm not I'm not an expert on mortgage-backed securities, but um, sort of from my view, like the way that I understand it, like um, I, I don't think the Federal Reserve would like to outright sell mortgage-backed securities just because there's sort of that would cause like a lot of complications in, in the market because the, the mortgage-backed securities the fed owns right now are basically the, they're off the run right and and so they're they're issued at a lower coupon um than than the market is currently trading and i think that the most of the fed's portfolio is like two and two and a half like percent coupons and and most of the market right now are issuing like three or three and a half percent coupons or even starting maybe to go higher from here um and so and basically what that means is that there's not as much of a liquid market for these securities anymore and so you know the, you can imagine like that there might be some problems that the fed is trying to sell, you know, significant like trillions of dollars of off-the-run mortgage-backed securities into a market where there's, you know, relatively little like liquidity. Um, so I, I don't anticipate them um, selling a lot of these mortgage-backed securities into the open market. Um, I think that it should be fine to, to just let them run off as they have, as, as we mentioned, sort of one of the, the motivations for wanting to sell um, these mortgage-backed securities outright is to tighten financial conditions in the housing market even more. But as, as we've seen, sort of mortgage rates continue to increase from here. Like, I, I don't think that's necessary anymore, but I'm, I'm curious to hear Joseph's view on this. So I'll set the stage a little bit for, for those in, in abroad who might not be as familiar with uh, U.S. mortgage-backed securities. So U.S. mortgage-backed securities are kind of special in the sense that um, it's a 30-year loan for the most part, and you can prepay it any time that you want. So, for example, if I took out a 5% mortgage and then interest rates went down 3%, then I can get a new loan to repay the old loan. And when that happens, then the old loan gets paid down and it shows up as a, a, as a prepayment um, for whoever holds the bond. So the Fed here has a whole bunch of mortgage-backed securities. And usually what would happen is that um, if you hold a mortgage-backed security, eventually rates drop and then you get a whole bunch of prepayments and, and the mortgage bond would that you that you hold will get paid off but because we're starting from such low mortgage rates let's say uh two and a half three percent um it's it's likely that maybe there won't be any prepayments like no one will ever refinance so the only way that these bonds will get paid off is through monthly principal and interest payments and that's a very slow process and that's what also allows the fed to kind of make these calculations as to how um how 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 the how the the QT will happen for mortgage-backed securities. Their, their estimate right now is it's about $25 billion a month in principal. Uh, 
Um, so we should, I think it's fair to assume that there won't be any prepayments. So if you have a $25 billion a month um, QT for mortgages and you have a cap of 35, you're basically never going to hit your cap. So um, that's why some people are wondering, maybe the Fed could sell later on and the Fed itself has made comments that, you know, we could sell later on. So I, I, I'm in agreement with Maroon here. I don't think that the Fed is going to sell any mortgages. If they do, it'll be probably in a couple years. So if you look at the chart that Maroon provided us, so, I mean, we're getting the the, uh, the mortgage paydowns are proceeding okay until, you know, let's say in 2024, then it gets kind of low to about 50, 15 billion. That's probably a bit slow. And But I'm thinking that something blows up before then and we just stop QT. So <laughs> we don't have to worry about something like that happening. Um, <laughs> but it's good to talk up mortgage sales, though. It tightens financial conditions. Uh, there, there's not, we don't have a chart here, but there's a spread between, um, let's say, uh, mortgage mortgage yields and um, tenure treasury. And I, uh, we showed this uh, with our with our talk with, with Jack and Harley Vassman, uh, I think a few months ago. And you can see that the mortgage, the spread between mortgages and um, treasuries really widened a lot over the past few months. And that's QT working. Um, so it's 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 done a lot of its work, as as Moon mentioned. I want to ask a question, which is, uh, well, for, first of all, Maroon, you have the, our next topic is a deep dive on balance sheet capacity, which is so complicated that I really should just hand the reins over to you. But before I do that, whoops, before I do that, I would want to just put on a comment from a gentleman named Nicholas Glinsman, who says, but for this time around, for quantitative tightening, we have substantially less liquid bond market. That is not only a good point, Nicholas Glinsman is actually a, our next guest. Uh, the video will air tomorrow on BlockWorks Macro channel. Joseph and I filmed it uh, a week, about a week and a half ago. So folks should definitely stay tuned uh, for that video. Um, for, for context, guys, Nick is, has a tremendous amount of experience. He's worked at some of the best macro funds on the street. He's worked on some of the best investment uh, banks on the street. So he has a wealth of knowledge. So you guys are going to love it. Yes, definitely. All right, now let's move on to our next topic. Uh, Maroon Macro, how do things like the SLR, RWA, differential accounting guidelines between nettable and non-nettable transactions uh, VAR limits, haircuts, collateral velocity, IM, VM requirements, etc., influence the ability of financial institutions to construct their balance sheets and conduct financial transactions. So, Maroon, right. <laughs> so Maroon, I understand what you're talking about. Clearly, I know I understand that question. But for the folks at home who don't, could you explain that? Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, I'll just start by defining like a lot of these acronyms first so that we can kind of dive into these. So it's an SLR, is, uh, it's a part of uh, Basel III's um, guidelines uh, governing bank balance sheet construction. It stands for the Supplementary Leverage Ratio. Basically, um, there's two sets of guidelines that are supposed to be governing like, how banks construct their balance sheet. One is the Supplementary Leverage Ratio, which is which is basically a risk asset neutral leverage ratio. It's just basically banks need to to maintain an asset of basically 20x of their, their tier one equity capital. Um, and so that basically just governs how how leveraged overall banks can be. And one of the important changes like about sort of uh, from with Basel 3 as compared to earlier versions of Basel, Basel 1 and 2 is that um, this is a non-risk weighted measure, which means that, uh, um, and, and it also captures all sorts of activities, right? So it, it captures like uh, over the counter, like uh, like off balance sheet, like derivatives, as well as like sort of like more on balance sheet activities like repo. And so that's basically, um, uh, 
as far as, as far as I understand it, um, it was not originally got, like the the BIS who, who puts together like these these Basel three rules, um, as well as like the Fed's like intentions, like sort of basically regulators' intentions for the SLR to be a binding constraint on balance sheet activity. It was supposed to be more as like a backstop, um, and so this has led to this sort of interesting um, situation where um, basically depending on which um, types of activities have sort of different accounting treatments underneath like the SLR and these various other like regulatory guidelines. Um, it incentivizes banks to engage in different kinds of behavior. And so a couple of years ago, we got a sort of a new, like a novel market invention, like right, right before the time of the repo blow up that may have facilitated the repo blow up in 2019, that um, basically it's something called sponsored repo. And, and this was basically born out of um, kind of like a frustration or, or response to a lot of these, like these, these uh, balance sheet restrictions. And so the problem is, is that for normal repo transactions, um, they're they're basically gross, which means that they count. You know, one dollar of repo counts. You know, one dollar against your 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 assets for the SLR, and so basically this leads to a problem where um, repo is is a relatively like historically it's been a high volume but a low spread business, right? And so that means that if you now have an SLR that basically gives you a fixed limit of of how much um, assets you can basically hold on your balance sheet, you don't want to do these high volume, low spread businesses. You want to do low volume, high spread businesses, right? And so that basically incentivizes banks on the margin to get out of like traditional repo and into sponsored repo or into like, or into uh, activities that have more favorable accounting treatments like FX swaps, right? And so FX swaps are very interesting because technically they are for, for all intents and purposes, like very similar, if not almost exactly the same to, to a repo transaction, right? It's basically a collateralized loan, right? It's, it's a loan collateralized by another currency. Um, but FX swaps have favorable, uh, favorable accounting as, as, compared to, uh, as compared to repo transactions. Um, and that basically leads to the situation where um, if banks have to choose between these various kinds of activities, they, they are more likely to choose these kinds of activities that have favorable accounting treatment. And so that leads to, basically all these types of problems where um, you have incentives which are not necessarily economic in nature, right? And and so obviously like, you know, you've had sort of these gaming of, of regulatory incentives in, in, past, in past regimes of, of, you know, Basel 1 and Basel 2, where you talked about, you know, if you if you loan you know, $100 of mortgages like that are like to a subprime borrower, it's $100 of mortgages on your balance sheet. If you package that into a mortgage-backed security, then it's diversified and then, then it counts only as 50%. And if you pair that with a credit default swap, then like, you know, the accounts only get 20% against your risk-weighted assets, right? And so, basically as a result of how these guidelines are structured you can have five times as much exposure essentially like through a different type of instrument um and and we can talk about whether or not that's that's justified or not because to some extent you know if you have a credit default swap on a subprime mortgage-backed security like it is safer than than holding just subprime whole loans but but it it, it changes the incentives for what types of assets banks and, and, and want to hold, right? And so I think this is just sort of a, an underrated, like overall driving force in, in markets. And then um, it, it basically, it, it pertains to, um, you know, so sort of we, we talk about the the money multiplier, right? And so it's sort of like the, the the ratio of like the monetary base to the amount of like like loans or deposits in the economy. And so the the, the money multiplier is it's a useful shorthand for trying to sort of understand and think about how how these things like work in in general terms. But it's it's basically it's strictly speaking, is it's not not necessarily an accurate representation of what actually occurs, but. It, 
it, regardless of that, I, I think that is, is a sort of useful analogy that we can kind of use to understand these things. And I, I almost call these things kind of like invisible money multipliers, right? And because as, as these things change, as these haircuts or collateral velocity or how the, how the SLR governs the, the accounting treatment of these different types of um, these different types of assets that banks could hold, it basically changes the, the, the invisible like money multiplier on these different types of assets, how, how much banks can leverage up on these assets. And it changes the, the structure and the, the favorable accounting treatment for these different types of assets in the financial system so that was kind of like a long like spiel and i'll sort of let, let you guys respond and like ask questions if you no like, no that, that was really good you said that a lot of transactions do not reflect an economic reality i'm paraphrasing I'd also say they don't represent a macroeconomic view. Banks can add yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars of long-duration treasury bonds viewed as a risk-off hedge to their balance sheet, and it has nothing to do with they think deflation is coming, right? It can just be based, be based due to a, a change in the SLR exemption ratio, right, Joseph? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of what the banks do has to do with the regulatory constraints that Maroon, Maroon mentioned. Uh, for example, um, Let's say that the let's say the bank makes a loan to to a business, right? So there's going to be capital charges for that under under regulations, and that that adds to the costs that a, a bank um, a bank incurs. And but if the bank were to buy treasuries, like you suggested, Jack, there's no it's there's no capital charges because there's no okay. So there's leverage ratio, but there's no um, risk based measure. So yeah. it could be cheaper for them to to buy a treasury, and so that could be a part of their consideration. And not to mention, they have a whole bunch of liquidity regulations. They kind of have to buy liquid assets like treasuries or keep reserves, for example. So they can be holding all these assets simply because under this huge optimization problem that, that they do, uh, it makes sense. Not because they have any macro view, but because it just makes sense under the myriad of regulations they have. And regulation, as Maroon mentioned, really does play a huge part in what they can do simply because it's so complicated. And, well, I mean, it's... Um, it's really hard to optimize depending and every every bank will be different as well so if you could have a mega bank like gpm or you could have a more or like a city bank which is also large but more international you could have like a most fargo which is more like a giant local bank or something like that so they, they have a different business models and uh, different constraints so i would not read into uh, anything macro about what they're doing with their their asset book We've got a question from Bruce that I think ties on really closely to uh, uh, this question. It said, we keep hearing banks don't need reserves to make loans. So why does it matter if quantity of reserves in the system decreases as it will during quantitative tightening? Reserves are mostly excess nowadays. No. Uh, Bruce, Maroon Macro has you covered. Maroon has prepared <laughs> some exquisitely complicated charts that I do not understand. But uh, I think I think Joseph, the team here at, at Four Guys of Joseph and Maroon Macro, are well prepared to answer that question. So let's actually start going into those charts and Maroon Macro. Can you explain uh, uh, what's going on? Yeah. So I guess if, if you want to throw out maybe the one uh, determinants of balance sheet expansion, like yep. the, like number seven, I think I think that was probably like the most relevant um, for what we're discussing here. So um, I, I basically uh, banks don't need reserves. I mean, so first of all, let me just preface this by saying reserve requirements were eliminated in March of 2020, right? March or April of 2020. So the, there are no like there are basically whatever reserve requirements that there used to be that they don't exist anymore, right? Um, so so that's one, right? And secondly, um, there's a really great um, IMF paper uh, by Manmohan 
Singh and um, another gentleman whose name I cannot recall right now called some alternative monetary fact. And basically, they they talk about how um, this this sort of myth that you know, of the the money multiplier, banks needing reserves to make loans, and, and they provide an example that says like basically um, back in like 2007 or 2006 or something, J.P. Morgan only had like 0.14 percent of its assets like in in actual reserves, right? Um, and so that's kind of an astounding fact, right? And, and so you're like, wait a minute, like I thought like banks needed to have 10% of their assets in like reserves or whatever. And so um, basically what what reserves, what banks use reserves for, and I've sort of written about this and I know Joseph's written about this a lot, um, is basically banks need reserves in order to settle transactions transactions with each other. And so they, they need, they don't need reserves to make the loan in the first place, but if, if the deposits that are created by those loans were to be transferred to another bank, um, then they, they would need reserves to settle with that bank at the end of the day. So they would transfer over deposits and they would transfer over res reserves to that bank. Um, and so basically these reserves are lent to settle transactions between banks. They're used to lend in the repo market. Um, they're also used to lend in like the FX fall market. Um, so the, they're needed to, in order to settle the, these interbank kind of transactions, like by, by both buying and selling as well as like lending and borrowing. Um, but they're, they're not used necessarily to make loans. So, so reserves are not necessary at all to make loans. And the other important thing that, that you know, reserves are used for, as, as shown in this diagram, is, is to satisfy various regulatory ratios that we were sort of alluding to before. And so one of the most important ones governing sort of the, the asset side of bank balance sheets is the, the liquidity coverage ratio. And so that basically determines like, you know, banks that need to have a certain uh, amounts of high quality liquid assets, basically uh, bank reserves and U.S. treasuries um, on their balance sheet in order to be considered like liquid or to have enough, like, I think it's like to have enough uh, liquidity to be able to cover outflows for 30 days or something like that, um, according to like a very complicated formula. And so basically bank reserves are used to satisfy regulatory ratios and they're used to basically settle transactions with other banks nope just just to, the alternative money facts it's also with uh, peter steller so peter uh, steller, that's what, yes yes it's actually a really really good uh uh academic so his stuff is definitely worth reading if you're interested in this money mechanics stuff i think that what we see in the bottom right corner of leverage as measured by assets divided by equity is limited to 20 times by the supplementary leverage ratio or slr requirement I think that's what I was referring to earlier, where uh, uh, the, the Federal Reserve or the U.S. government made an exception for banks whereby treasuries would not count as assets in the numerator. Is that is that correct? And therefore, yeah, that's correct. and that's and then banks loaded up on treasuries, and the conclusion that a lot of people had was, oh my God, banks are so worried about a depression, but actually they were just given a free amount of of risk assets to hold or, or le of leverage to hold. And, and it's, yeah, basically, so it was not necessarily reflecting economic factors. It was just sort of, uh, they were sort of relatively more advantageous compared to other types of, of assets. And so this is obviously just, this is an illustrative diagram. Like, it's not exactly how the SLR works, um, but this is just to try and give, like, a general, like, representation so that people can kind of understand, like, what it's talking about. Right. And also, for example, um, like Maroon mentioned, there's this, uh, many other regulations like the liquidity coverage ratio. And, you know, treasuries would satisfy that as well, right? So they have all these. So banks are doing things under their um, optimizing under their regulations. And it's unless you're really familiar with their business strategy, it's hard to, to read into um, any macro view from, from what they're doing. 
And, and sort of another interesting thing that um, I think is, is sort of just worth briefly mentioning here, but it sort of is, pertains to like sort of the, the nature of, of money itself as kind of like, if you think about like sort of what money is, like at, at like its most fundamental level, right? It, it's sort of like purchasing power generally, right? It, money is something that allows you to buy or to purchase something else, right? And, and so if you think about money in this very like general sense, in this very abstract sense, like just take going, moving away from like deposits or, or, or reserves here, or right? Or even things that are like more like money, like assets, like treasury bills, right? You can think of, of, of money in, in sort of a very general sense, and in some, so some sense, you know, might you might consider FX swaps to be money, or or interest rate swaps to be money in some sense, because these these when you combine interest rate swaps with with loans or securities, like it, it might allow you to hold more of these loans and securities, which basically is, is allowing you to have more purchasing power over these kinds of, of assets and, and and stuff like that. And so another one of these things which sort of governs, um, you know, how many assets or what kinds of assets banks can hold is something called value at risk, right? And so um, basically value at risk is for those um, who are not like as familiar, it is basically a certain type of risk measure that, that different banks and hedge funds and these type of financial institutions would use that basically um, tells them given like how volatile an asset is like historically, like usually over like a 30 day look back period, um, how much volatility is acceptable um, for, for that asset, right? And so something that's very interesting to think about is if you have a $100 million portfolio of securities at a 10% bar limit, which means that in the maximum amount that you can lose over some period of time, like given statistical, like assuming that, uh, you know, historical probability distributions hold is 10%, right? If that is the same thing as a portfolio with a $200 million portfolio with a 5% bar limit, or a $400 million portfolio with a 2.5% bar limit, or a $1 billion portfolio with a 1% bar limit, right? Those, those all mean the same thing, right? And so when you think about sort of money in this more abstract nature, you kind of realize that a lot of these concepts are very fungible, right? And and so there's there's in some sense that money isn't even necessarily just bank deposits or, or reserves in some sense. It's these, the way that these different mathematical like um, risk measures and formula and, and regulatory incentives and, and all these different types of things kind of come together. And that that's why I sort of, call it, I, just, I, I can't think of a better term for it other than balance sheet capacity, right? And balance sheet capacity is basically just the ability for one unit of balance sheet space, like however you define that to be, to allow you to take on one unit of additional risk exposure or one unit of additional purchasing power. Um, and so that's sort of like, it's a it's a concept that, you know, I, I don't see discussed very often and I think is very, very, very fascinating to sort of like dive into. And so like, um, I, I just think like, if you think about that, that sort of concept, I think a little bit more, it's, it's something that's very interesting and I'm, I'm not sure if that was clear at all if that's, if that's not clear if you have to clarify oh, I, I thought that was Joseph go ahead yeah. I think it makes sense I mean let's say that some volatility rises up then a lot of things become less money like so to speak right so when volatility is low every, all the markets are moving s smoothly you can trade you know you can trade your assets for bank deposits or something else with little loss but when you have volatility very high you know the liquidity is not there you're probably going to not being able to easily convert your assets into, into bank deposits. So I guess your assets become less money, money like, so I think that, I don't know, that's how I see that. Is that, is that what you were trying to say? 
Yeah, um, th there's actually, I'm going to try and make this very tangible for people. Um, so this this is trying to bring it you know, from an abstract from an abstract level down to like a very tangible level. So this is uh, from a podcast I was listening to, like it came out a little while ago from this guy um, called Josh Younger, who I think is the head of U.S. interest rate strategy at J.P. Morgan's like fixed income research. And he's, yeah, he's, he's what he's what he's what he's describing here is he's basically describing um, what happened like during like March 2020 with like um, how, how is the SLR ratio like in, uh, interacting with like this sort of trading desk. And so I guess to, to set the scene a little bit, maybe Joseph would be better at explaining this than I would, but because um, <laughs> I, I believe if I remember correctly, you were there, but um, basically uh, there was historically unprecedented volatility in the, in, the, in the U.S. charger market during March 2020, right? And so basically what happened is we first, like, if I remember, like we saw a huge bid for treasuries and then we saw a sell off because basically you had the, these relative value hedge funds, like that were their basis trades were blowing up. You also had like foreign investors who were trying to sell treasuries to try and get cash. Um, and so you had all of this sort of complicated mess. Basically, the U.S. Treasury market became completely frozen or like basically uh, almost totally unusable for a period of several days, which is unprecedented for what is supposed to be the most liquid, most reliable market in the world. And Josh Younger is describing like what happened here. And I'm just going to sort of quote from, from this directly. He says, it's important to note that at no point during uh, March 2020 was leverage likely to become binding. And, he, and he's referring to the, the SLR ratio. He said there was plenty of buffer. He said, even if a dealer is not being constrained by leverage, you can face local scarcity of balance sheet. Treasury and repo intermediation is very intensive in balance sheet level, but also in volatility. And so, so he says, what, he's, what we saw in March of last year was this binding at the trading desk level, not at the enterprise level where the SLR is binding. And so basically what he's saying here is that, um, you know, while banks are influenced by these regu regulatory um, guidelines, um, there's also a lot of subjective decision making that happens sort of like behind the scenes. Um, and it's this type of thing that I'm referring to when I talk about balance sheet capacity. It could come down to some trading desk manager on the floor of like the the, the repo desk at JP Morgan's office in New York who's saying like, okay, we're not going to do any more repo today. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen with the treasury market. We're just going to stop it like because we, we can't afford to take the risk. And so it's these types of things that basically influence how money like um and how liquid these these securities can be and and it's i think it's a, these types of decisions that you know it's not they're not you know always mentioned in textbooks I, I think these are the types of things that really like sort of determine like you know what is money like can a u.s treasury security be sold on that day because you know the jp morgan decides that they, you know they're willing to take the other side of that trade right or do they not want to take the other side of that trade because there's too much volatility um and so that's i, I think something that um it's very underappreciated there's a there's actually a blog post from um, the New York Fed about that, and they were basically saying exactly what you said. So what they did was they looked at the dealers that were under SLR and those that they were not, and they they saw that during March they didn't really behave very differently. And the commentary is that it wasn't that they were bound by SLR; it's that because the volatility was so high, just to, just to protect themselves, they weren't able to make markets as, as they used to. So, for context, guys, so a dealer would buy security at a lower one price and then sell it at a higher price. But if the bid ask rate is very wide and if treasuries are moving out a lot, you don't really know what the right price is, and so you don't really want to warehouse that risk, and so you kind of pull back your market making activities, so people can't sell. And so, to Moon's point. Um, if, if the dealer is not making a market, then the investor who wants to sell their securities for bank deposits, uh, has trouble doing that. That makes treasuries, I guess, less money-like. And I think an even broader point, though, is that there's a tremendous amount of investment funds 
who basically uh, have volatility as an input in their strategy. So when, when volatility is high, they, they all pull back. So, you know, it's not just dealers, it's, it's everyone just kind of pulls back and that kind of makes everything crash. And, but when volatility is down, then everyone comes back and, uh, you know, that's, it's kind of a, they can lever up, they can buy stuff, liquidity comes back. So, you know, it's a input to make the market go higher. Yeah, just uh, I think the the a movie that is illustrates this so uh, well is the movie Margin Call about oh. the uh, a bank going through the process of realizing early on that volatility in mortgage backed securities and, and and CDOs had reached a certain level at which when volatility was down here it made sense to trade and have and have a lot of access on your book but once volatility went up here you know there was like a uh, you know, a ninety-five percent carnival, or sort of five percent chance that you know within a week you could lose as much money that was greater than the market cap of the entire bank. So go bank, and then the, the, they sort of started a fire sale. And actually, um, from from a book I read uh, by Bethany McLean uh, called "All the Devils Are Here," it's it's uh, they should, uh, report how in the prior before the Great Financial Crisis, several bank CEOs were constantly tracking their VARs, their value at risk. But from the wrong way, how they were saying they they they, they just knew it as a number it that was, was upside the, down. <laughs> yeah, they, they they just knew it as a number that was the ninety five percent confidence interval of how much they could lose in a day, and they wanted the number to be higher because they said we're not taking enough risk. Uh, and of course, the more volatile that things became, the more money they would lose, and then it becomes this cycle where you have to to trade less and less. And Maroon, you made a point. I'll just expand upon it. A buying a you know, owning the S and P 500 when the VIX is at, uh, let's see, what is it, uh, 64, it has the pretty much the exact same exposure as owning the as as being four times leveraged when the VIX is at 16. Because a VIX when the VIX is at 16, that means that the S and P 500 is going to move one percent in a day, roughly. And when it's at 64, that means it's going to move four percent in a day. So. You know, it's it's pretty much the same thing. So when volatility is higher, you have to de-risk. And when volatility is low, as we saw from April of 2020 till December of 2021, you know, you can it's, it's you can just go go, go uh, you know go crazy, lever up, you know, buy all sorts of risk assets. Uh, but Joseph, yeah, can we get a little more color into what it was like in March of 2020? As Maroon said, you you did work there. What was it like just seeing the market collapse? Yeah, you know, so the treasury market collapses was kind of interesting because it hasn't happened before. Like Maroon mentioned, everyone assumes that, you know, you can show up at the treasury market, you can sell your treasuries for from cash for bank deposits. And that assumption basically failed. You can kind of think of it as, you know, people, you have money at a bank, you think you can go to the bank and get cash out anytime you want. Um, people thought the same about the treasury market, showed up, realized they couldn't, and they, they kind of panicked and they were just selling whatever they could sell. Um, so it was it was kind of a disaster. So uh, just going back to the cash, what, what happened was that a lot of people who wanted exposures for treasuries just couldn't get it in the cash market anymore. So they all went to the um, futures market, the derivatives market, because the derivatives are essentially cleared. So there was still liquidity there. And so that, that kind of caused a massive squeeze um, in the, in the uh, treasury futures. So everyone went to buy those instead of cash treasuries. And it caused the basis to widen even more between the, the between the cash and the futures. So that really hurt a lot of people. And when the basis widening, why is that so bad? Why is that so, so bad? So if you're if you're a hedge fund in that trade, what you're doing is um, you're, you're buying the cash treasury and then you're selling selling the uh, treasury futures. And there's a basis between that you harvest and 
ultimately the basis and the cash treasuries they converge uh, when the contract ends. So you're going to get that. That that's that's uh, that's fine. But the thing is, the basis could widen further before it converges, and if it widens further, and you are you know you have to put up margin with your broker. And if it widens a lot, you're going to have to put up a lot of margin. And if it widens so much that you can't put up any more margin, then you have to close out the position. You eat the loss. And a lot of people ate the loss and they couldn't come back. So it wasn't just it wasn't just um, the, uh, the hedge funds in that trade, but a lot of people who did similar things like the mortgage REITs also had the same problem. So the mortgage REITs, you know, they, they own cash mortgages, but they also hedge their interest rates in, uh, in the interest rate derivatives markets. And they had the same problem with the cash mortgage market, cash agency IBS market was was frozen, but the derivatives markets were moving, and so they were taking big losses there. So it hurt a lot of people, and you know I think some of them didn't make it. Uh, I actually remember so back on the desk, so we would have periodic discussions with hedge funds for color, right, to see what they were doing. It helps us understand and report to to people at the Fed uh, what's happening in the markets. And you know I I remember there's well, there's one group of people who just you know just kind of disappeared and it was strange. I mean, usually we talk, why, do, why are you guys not responding? And then reading that they kind of all got canned a, a, few, a few days later and we work. So, you know, it was a hectic time. Yeah. Joseph, we got two topics. I think we only have time for one. One is how DeFi can solve some of these problems. Um, Maroon Macro has that yeah. view. We also could talk about Bretton Woods 3 and uh, the commodity complex sort of exerting sort of a strain on commercial bank balance sheets. Where do you want to go? Oh, we're gonna defer to Maroon Macro. I know he he has done work on both those topics. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I think let's let's do DeFi. I think because a lot a lot of people have already talked about kind of silicon posers like Bretton Woods three, and I, I'm not sure like how much more of like a unique viewpoint I can I can really like I think contribute to that. Um, so I guess uh, really quickly before we we talk about DeFi, I think if you throw up like the the one that says banking sector assets and book equity, um, I think it's like the ninth one that I sent you. Um, I think this sort of just summarizes like all the stuff that we've just been talking about, and basically what this is is this is a chart from the bank from. International, bank for international settlements and basically it shows that you know right around like 2008 2009 um or 2007 like you know banks banking sector assets and, and book equity were, were basically well i guess their, their equity is still growing slightly but their assets have actually declined right and so that basically you know shows that you know bank balance sheet capacity has basically been constrained like, since that period of time and so you can also you know as you're hearing like joseph talk about these things and jack talk about these things you can you can sort of imagine like these these like invisible money multipliers basically collapsing right and so you know before you had value or risk that like banks were capable of taking a significant amount of risk with, with not that much equity behind it but but you can see like as volatility increases as uh tolerance for risk decreases um it's basically a collapse in leverage in the financial system and and i think this this chart sort of explains like a lot of the the economic and financial conditions that we've seen basically since the, the global financial crisis and so um basically we're we're in this environment that both due to sort of uh um banks own um sort of behavior as well as due to sort of i guess regulatory reinforcement um where we're in this i guess uh era of like chronically constrained bank and balance sheet capacity. Um, and so I think this is one of the very, very important sort of driving factors behind the economic conditions that we're seeing today. And 
I guess, you know, we may not have that much time to get super deep into this, but I think, uh, you know, decentralized finance, like crypto in general, like, um, you know, obviously maybe like not now, but like at some point, like five or 10 years into the future, I think has a very realistic possibility of, of potentially solving some of these problems. Because basically the way the financial system works now is it requires like a few very large centralized sort of institutions to take on and have the appetite for all this risk, right? And and for to, to conduct all these financial intermediation capabilities. And there's a lot of problems that go along with that, right? There's sort of efficiency problems. There's, you know, problems of like opacity or transparency, um, as well as just sort of like, like I mentioned earlier, these, these capacity problems. And so when you, when you take decentralized finance, basically what you're doing is you're abstracting this need for balance sheet space from just a few centralized institutions. And you're basically abstracting it to the entire world. Right. And so because decentralized finance is a direct like peer to peer system and all these these assets are bearer assets. And so every single thing that you have is, you know, it's not necessarily like a liability of some other institution. It's it's, it's outside money. Right. Um, then you, you don't need um, basically capacity on these these financial institutions for you to be able to conduct transactions. Um, you can just directly peer to peer conduct transactions with each other. And, and the other major problems that it solves are the, the opacity and transparency problem where I mean, I know Joseph has said that, you know, the Federal Reserve is definitely getting better at this, but, um, you know, there's a lot of information that we don't really know about what goes on in the financial system even today, right? And so, you know, obviously the, the Federal Reserve is trying to push like more and more treasuries into, into central clearing, but like, um, and sort of more and more of repo transactions to, to clear by the FICC. Um, but, you know, we don't really know, like, except for like estimates and surveys about what goes on in like the uncleared repo market, for example, the uncleared bilateral repo market, or like, you know, the, the BIS like you know um, does estimates of like the total exposure of like of, of cross-border cross-border exposure of banks and in, in, uh, over-the-counter derivatives and stuff but we don't really know like for sure like what these exposures are like um and I, that's a huge problem right like it might not matter that much when, when economic conditions are rel more relatively more benign but but you know when when there's something's blowing up like you really need to be able to pinpoint exactly like what the problem is right and you know, I think blockchain based finance is, is is incredible for that because, you know, I, I can go in like myself and I can see the exposures that everybody has. Right. I can go see what the exposures of like the lending protocols are. Go see like what wallets have, like what tokens and like what kind of like liabilities they have. So I can see oh this guy's like about to go get liquidated or something um, or, you know, this person like controls like 10 percent of the supply of this token. And so I think that sort of transparency is 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 useful, not just from like a sort of like a corruption standpoint, but but also like more importantly, from like an efficiency standpoint standpoint right and so it allows you to be able to you know just conduct economic and financial transactions more efficiently because of that um so i yeah i mean i guess like if, if you guys want to sort of dive in deep more deeply into any of those um like i can i can talk about that or if we're running short on time then that's also okay too joseph i so am i am i am i so basically this is you could, it's kind of like doing something like Lending Club, but in a much more sophisticated way with more transparency and better technology. And then you can kind of get out of the banking system, no more balance sheet constraints. It's just decentralized. That, is that fair? Uh, yeah, I think that's like a relatively fair description, but I think like sort of the, the, the problem is, is that a lot of people will say, okay, then why, why isn't like fintech like an answer to this, right? Like direct lending and this type of stuff. And I think the problem is, is because you need to sort of get, in my opinion, like um, sort of, more completely outside of the old system just because there are too many like legacy constraints um that 
are sort of holding back, I think, the sort of traditional financial system. And obviously, this is not a transformation I'm expecting tomorrow or even in the next five years, right? This is probably something that's going to be like a 10 or more year evolution, right? Um, and obviously, there, you know, maybe there's going to be a role for central bank digital currencies in this and whether or not, you know, stablecoin issuers will need to have their, their sort of assets like backed by reserves at the central bank. Like maybe, the, maybe there's a role there, right? And sort of like how we think about the evolution of these, these uh, intermediaries going forward, right? Because obviously, we've just seen the spectacular blow up of, of Terra, right? And so we've seen the sort of problems that might happen with algorithmic stablecoins. And and sort of we also see the problems that might happen with centralized, like non, non-algorithmic stablecoins, like the, with the, some of the shady disclosures with regards to Tether, right? And so, you know, do we, you know, do we really know, like, if the assets they say are backing, like, are actually backing, like, you know, Tether? Or do they actually, you know, I mean, Tether wouldn't even qualify as a money market fund, right? Under 2A7, like, regulations, right? And so, they, <laughs> so I mean, like, there's sort of a lot of, a lot of problems here still right so that, that's my, my point so i think um the further that we can get outside of this old system and, and find sort of like um new ways to do these things um and run like you know hundreds of these monetary experiments like all at once um we can find something that eventually works and and find a more efficient form of financial intermediation that sort of gets us out of this like you know a stodgy old like sort of like um bureaucratic like um structure of like all these bank balance sheet constraints um and and be able to conduct uh, you know financial intermediation in a more efficient like manner yeah i i think that your long-term thesis theoretically is true just because i think that decentralized finance allows people to create their own balance sheet and share their balance sheet with other folks and the technology allows them ostensibly to be for it to be more transparent if you sort of know how to code and you know how to learn that. So I think, as you say, it's going to, it's going to take a while. You say about the, I agree with you also about the monetary experiments, but I just think it's, I, I think it's, I only wish that we had sort of a monetary experiments that cost people $40 million. $40 billion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess if you guys want to throw up like one of like the last diagrams, I think it might be useful to take a look at here. Yes. Um, I have the, no idea what this is. What are we um, looking at here? Figure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, no, not, not this one. Uh, the, 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 the number eight, um this one yeah, uh yes this one um, i have so even less of an idea of what this is yeah that looks even more complicated and then this one i mean this is it's not like showing like necessarily anything factual it's just sort of like a I, i'm like a very visual thinker like a very conceptual thinker so this is the way i sort of have attempted to put this down on, on a piece of paper to try and like, explain sort of what was going on in my head and so i think you know sort of decentralized finance is sort of a it's a very natural evolution and and the the sort of definition or the, the nature of money itself and so if you think about like you know sort of uh, how, how money used to be back in like you know whatever 3000 bc or back back in uh you know whatever the, the ancient middle east um it basically just be a single entry of like you know dates you know transactions and prices right but that obviously has a lot of problems because what if someone just decides to change an entry right and so that you know that's a problem right and so then eventually sometime around like the the, the renaissance in italy we got double entry accounting right and so this is basically where you have the rise of the medici and then sort of the the rise of sort of modern banking right where double entry accounting is pe- people think it's like a bit boring and like obviously like i, I don't think that you know um it's, it's not such a novel innovation anymore but double entry accounting at the time was it it, it was a hugely novel innovation in the nature of money itself because it's kind of one of the first times where you get a very robust system for uh 
the rules for credit expansion and, and, and governing credit itself. And this is where you separate like basically like, you know, the two columns of the accounting balance sheet into debits and credits, basically sources and, and uses of funds. And I guess this maybe is a too long of a discussion to get into right now, but it basically, it, it, it ushered in kind of the modern era of like credit creation um, because now you have, you have assets and liabilities and you have a robust system for tracking these things. Um, and basically the, the two sides of the balance sheet must always match, must, must always at the end of the day, like tally up and match each other. Um, then we have sort of the, the evolution um, that we got like sort of more along like the, the 1950s and 60s where we had the sort of expansion of like, you know, the off offshore dollar system, like the euro dollar system, like commercial paper, like federal funds, borrowing, lending, um, all these different types of like novel interbank assets and liabilities where we had sort of like more of these uh, double these these double entry accounting systems of these various banks interacting with each other with sort of like an auditor or notary or, or regulator sort of in between to try and translate these systems like between each other right and so that that's kind of like the system that we have right now um and i think sort of decentralized finance is sort of a very natural evolution away from that into something that's like even more decentralized where you can sort of see this you know throughout time we have this um sort of going into you know i guess as we increasingly go into the future, we, we at least so far, we're, we're moving to a system that is more and more decentralized, um, sort of this natural progression. And obviously, you know, depending on what, you know, legislators want to do with central bank digital currencies and, and whether or not they want to sort of like have a monopoly on that, that's sort of another discussion, like what, what will be allowed to happen versus what uh, natural innovation will, will sort of, will, you know, governments sort of force the repoint upon the populations and say you can only use central bank digital currencies and blockchain-based finance is completely outlawed. Like, I know there's, there's ways you can be resistant to that but obviously governments can make it very difficult to do things in the meantime right so, so that, that's one consideration but i think if you allow history and technological development to sort of take its natural course then i think the development of blockchain-based finance is a very sort of just natural continued evolution along like the lines of that started you know in 3000 bc back in the ancient middle east and you know has you know it's the next step i think in the financial and monetary system yeah i'd say i fundamentally agree that digital assets and the blockchain are the fun, the next step and that it will take in that journey. Um, a lot, a few parallels, uh, what you say, uh, macro uh, maroon macro is very interesting. A few parallels that, that come out to me is that it hinges upon the law because when you own, when you buy a bond, let's say a distressed security at 60 cents on the dollar, it has a coupon you're buying at 60 cents. If it pays out in full, you'll get a hundred dollars back. But, you know, maybe you'll have to, if it doesn't, if it goes bankrupt, you'll have to go to a creditor's court and maybe you'll be, get paid 75 cents on the dollar and then you, you make that spread. But the thing is with digital assets and DeFi in particular, the token every single second is always repriced. So you have these DeFi protocols that are you know yielding 300%, but they're yielding 300% in a currency that is itself depreciating every single day. So I, yeah, I think I, I'm not. When I say laws, I'm not even talking about the regulars. I'm just talking about how do you like know rules, who, basically? Who, right? Yeah, yeah. Rules, and, rules and who 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 gets paid. Um, yeah, and, um, yeah. So this is interesting, Maroon. I'd love to. I'd love to have you back to to talk talk more about uh, DeFi. But uh, I think let's leave it there. So the topic of today's discussion is the Fed's three trillion dollar problem talking about the three trillion dollar roll off of its balance sheet that it has to do uh let's let's get sort of like closing remarks and take as take as long as, as you'd like uh joseph how about we start with you oh i think we should also mention that if you guys are oh. interested in all the regulation stuff and DeFi and, and the history of banking maroon has a really cool Substack that he goes in depth uh, over all this and maroon where, where can people find your Substack? 
Uh, yeah, so it's uh, maroonmacro.substack.com. Um, and then like, I also have a Twitter uh, profile where I, I kind of post like more of like my shorthand views. It's just like maroon underscore macro on Twitter. Joseph? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you've no, used yeah, I, yeah. I think I think QT would be very bearish for the market. You know, actually, you know, I think I read about this. I, I, I'm getting the sense that I think tightening will, will be proceeding a bit more aggressive than the Fed anticipates simply because the RP is going so much higher. So um, I, I think that we're at this time where, you know, bonds are selling off and stocks are selling off. Everyone wants cash and cash is the one thing that the Fed is taking away. So the Fed is kind of squeezing the world where they're just kind of taking away the last exit where people can run to. So I, that just means you're going to have to sell your socks for lower prices to get the cash that you want. So I, I, I don't think we'll get to the full three trillion. Something will break beforehand. I don't know when, but um, I don't think it's very positive for our assets now. Michael. I guess uh, I I, uh, I have a very similar view as, as Joseph, sort of basically like more or less. Like I think that you know we're we'll, we're gonna have you know be continuing in some relatively turbulent times, like in the financial markets for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, um, we'll start to see you know where pressures will emerge first. Like you know maybe we'll, like I think we're we're seeing credit starting to sell off like a little bit. Like um, then maybe we, like you know as reserve balances start to become more scarce, we might just see like you know FX basis like starting to blow out, and obviously like equities might continue to have some pain. Um, so I think I, I agree with Joseph that I think the Fed will be turning around sooner than they expect. I would I would guess like um, so yeah. Uh, Maroon, do you feel comfortable letting people know sort of what your situation is, where, where you are, and specifically, you know, what it what it yields, or or no? Uh, I think maybe in the in the future, like I'll be more comfortable with that. Like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think I think for now, like that, like I like prefer, you know, I, in six months you can have me on an interview and we can talk more about that. I think that'll be an interesting conversation. For sure, for sure. Well, Maroon Macro, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone should follow you at Maroon underscore Macro. Everyone should follow at FedGuy12. Uh, Joseph's writings can be found at FedGuy.com. Buy Joseph's book, Central Banking 101. I actually it was at Permissionless, a uh, uh, BlockWorks. Uh, crypto event this prior week, and there were a lot of fans of Joseph Wang. So I took they showed I took photos of them uh, with uh, your book, Joseph. They they brought their book to the convention. Um, Thanks, and so, you guys remember to follow Jack Farley ninety six for the best content on macro. There we go. Thank you, Joseph, and thank you everyone for watching. Don't forget to subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel, and have a good day.